Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome uh, on this rainy Friday morning to a very important session on screening for mental health in children and adolescents. We have a, a distinguished panel, which I'll introduce just briefly. Uh, before, before we do that, I, I just want to uh, take a moment to uh, recognize the, the lives of two people that, uh, that unfortunately were, you know, died yesterday um, uh, as a result of gun violence uh, and Officer Alex Hansey and Sergeant Dustin DeMonte um, were killed uh, yesterday in Bristol uh, in a tragedy that uh, reminds us of the difficult situation we have with gun violence in, in the United States. Uh, one of his colleagues, Alec Lovato, uh, survived and is uh, currently uh, hospitalized and we wish his family well, but we want to uh, just have a moment of silence for, for these two brave officers who passed away uh, in the line of duty, uh, you know, heroes. Uh, we thank them for their service and we extend our condolences to the entire Bristol Police Department, the town of Bristol and, and all the officers here in, in Connecticut and throughout the country. So let's just take a moment of silence. Thank you. Um, this is a uh, this symposium this morning is a follow up to a, to a previous grand rounds that we had with Joyce Langnese and uh, we felt that it was really important to bring our our, our providers here, our physicians, our psychologists, our experts in this field to uh, address the issue of screening for mental health in children and adolescents. It is such an important topic for pediatricians, for anyone in healthcare to be paying attention to, and we really have truly. Uh, experts in, in uh, national experts in, in this area. So I uh, reached out to uh, the group and I've asked them to present this morning for you. And I think this will be a very informative session. Uh, I'm going to be very brief in the introduction. So all of you know everyone who's going to be here. The first one is going to be Dr. Paul Dworkin, who's Executive Vice President for Community Child Health. I'm then followed by Dr. Melissa Santos, who's Associate Professor of Pediatrics, Associate, Associate Chair for Diversity equity and inclusion, and uh, she leads our division of child psychology. Uh, Stephen Rogers, uh, who is, uh, you've seen him in the news frequently, in the ED, very busy, uh, and, and he is the medical director of emergency behavioral health services, an expert in suicide prevention, and our own Dr. Rochelle DeMeo, who's our chief medical information officer and director of the Pediatric Headache Center as well. So the four of them are going to really uh, do a speed round, and I'm going to begin with Dr. Paul Dworkin, who will begin, and then followed by uh, Melissa, Steve, and Rochelle Paul. Thanks very much, Juan. Good morning, everyone. I'm really pleased to be here. I, like you, have so appreciated these Ask the Expert sessions, and I take note that these have really been driven by critical contemporary issues, of course, the pandemic and the behavioral health crisis. And to set the stage for my colleagues' presentations this morning, I'd like to also emphasize the extent to which screening is in fact a timely critical contemporary issue. So here's a headline that appeared just a few weeks ago from the New York Times health panel recommends anxiety screening for all adults under 65. And many of you may be aware that yesterday there was a press release on the US Preventive Services Task Force recommendation for anxiety screening in all children ages eight years and up. 
Here a little closer to home is a headline from The Current, also from a couple of weeks ago, uh, on the Connecticut's lethality assessment program in which screening for domestic violence, ironically and sadly, the call that led to the police officer's deaths uh, just the other day, uh, in which recommendation is for domestic violence screening. So screening is very much a critical contemporary issue. It is extremely important as a component of the early detection process. And yet also it's an extremely nuanced issue. And in fact, screening and the screening process is very much informed by and influenced by the conditions to which we are applying the process. So I want you to be mindful of the extent to which screening for behavioral concerns, mental health conditions, suicidality, which will be a major focus of discussion this morning, and social drivers, social determinants of health, these conditions are different than those for which screening is much more straightforward. Inborn errors of metabolism, sensory impairment, growth failure. And I say this because there are well-established criteria, well-promoted from the middle of the last century onward, that define the attributes by which conditions are judged amenable to the screening process. And I want you to consider the extent to which mental health conditions, suicidality, social drivers fulfill or don't exactly fulfill the criteria by which conditions are amenable to screening. They must have significant morbidity or mortality and be sufficiently prevalent in the population. Screening programs must include the entire population. Diagnostic tests must clearly distinguish affected from non-affected persons. The condition must be treatable or controllable. Detection and treatment during the asymptomatic stage must improve prognosis. Adequate resources must be available for definitive diagnosis and treatment. And the cost of screening must be outweighed by savings in suffering and alternative expenditures. Again, these criteria have been around for a long time. And I would suggest the conditions that we are speaking of this morning do not ideally fulfill this, these criteria. That doesn't mean screening is unimportant or not extremely useful for these conditions, but it means we must think about the screening process in the appropriate context. Similarly, there are well-established criteria by which screening tools are judged appropriate for the screening process. They must be simple, convenient, acceptable. They have to be reliable and valid, that is sensitive and specific. And the conditions that we are speaking of this morning are such that optimal sensitivity and specificity are impossible to achieve. Developers of these screening tools have to sacrifice either sensitivity or specificity. And because of the intent to not allow children slip through the cracks, sensitivity is often emphasized at the expense of specificity. They must be economical and they must lend themselves to easy interpretation. These criteria distinguish 
the conditions that we are speaking of today and suggest important implications and caveats for their use in the early detection process. And in fact, our thinking about early detection has evolved over the years. Beginning in the late 1980s, we began to appreciate the critical importance of the periodic administration of screening tests and longitudinally every opportunity eliciting and attending to parents' opinions, concerns, and needs, as well as doing things that we do on a regular basis all the time, obtaining a relevant history, making accurate observations, identifying risk and resiliency factors, and particularly when concerns arise, sharing opinions with others who know the child. So the American Academy of Pediatrics came to ultimately recommend in a policy statement first published in 2006, that early detection for the type of conditions we are speaking of this morning include the periodic administration of formal screening tools, but the longitudinal practice of surveillance and monitoring at each and every visit. And importantly, when we administer screening tools, we interpret the results in the context of all that we know about the child, their circumstance, and the family. There are notable cautions incorporated within the AAP policy statement. Screening should not be seen as an algorithm for referral. A screen and refer approach does a disservice to the family. Rather, screening and screening results should be regarded as the starting point for a discussion with the family. And in addition, screening should not be conflated or confused with assessment. Screening may lead to the need for further assessment, but it is not the same as assessment. So the AAP published its original policy statement in 2006 and then reissued its statement on surveillance and screening, monitoring and screening as a clinical guideline in 2020. I, I wanna correct a misperception that was offered during the grand rounds that Juan cited. An AAP policy statement should not be interpreted as a standard of medical care. That is not the intent of the American Academy of Pediatrics. And in fact, every policy statement, every clinical guideline includes the following wording. The guidance in this statement does not indicate an exclusive course of treatment or serve as a standard of medical care. Variations taking into account individual circumstances may be appropriate. That's an important distinction to keep in mind. So what are the implications for early detection of the appropriate utilization of screening and surveillance and screening when it comes to behavioral concerns, mental health conditions, suicidality, and social drivers? Early detection and therefore screening must always be considered within the comprehensive integrated process of developmental promotion, early detection, referral and linkage. We should not be thinking about screening or early detection in isolation. That lacks efficacy and is probably even unethical. 
So this means that we must support our child health providers, early care and education providers, family support providers with a system of supports that enable the early detection, referral and linkage piece. And we're fortunate in Connecticut and at Connecticut Children's that we have an excellent center for care coordination that does this. Several initiatives of our state office of early childhood, including Connecticut Help Me Grow and the Sparkler technology, which is an app, a technology that strengthens families' capacities to perform developmental promotion, early detection, referral, and linkage. And also United Way of Connecticut statewide 211 child development afford providers the opportunity to perform early detection and ensure the appropriate referral and linkage, including to community-based programs and services. I just want to very briefly point out that we've adopted the same approach in our work in North Hartford as part of the North Hartford Ascend Pipeline, a U.S. Department of Education grant that is supporting us in developing a cradle-to-career pipeline for children and families living in Hartford's three poorest neighborhoods. And what we are doing within this pipeline is creating an integrated approach that will elicit families' opinions, priorities, and concerns, will capture and identify the array of programs, services, and supports that exist at the community level, and employ care navigators, care coordinators, home visitors, and others to effectively link families to these programs, services, and supports. This must be done in the context of system building. So let me offer just a few words on screening for social drivers or social determinants of health that also logically follow from all that we have already referenced this morning. For reasons that we've discussed, screening tools for social determinants, social drivers have inherent limitations. That does not mean that they're not clinically efficacious and useful, but we must be mindful of the limitations. Their accuracy, their positive predictive validity, if you will, is heavily dependent on the prevalence of the problem within the population. High prevalence, greater accuracy. Low prevalence, less accuracy. Obviously, our interventions, our remedies, our solutions are dependent on a very fragile safety net of programs and services. Also, there have been a number of clinical studies that have shown that the best impact from early detection of social drivers occurs when families indicate a desire for assistance rather than simply acknowledging a need. When families indicate a desire for assistance, they receive the greatest help and derive the greatest benefit. And yet very few screening tools actually elicit families' desire for assistance. And then finally, if there is a very high prevalence of a problem within a community like housing instability, why are we screening? Why are we not simply providing information on the resources that are available to those families? 
So let me share with you a half a dozen key tenants that apply directly to social drivers for health screening, but also have implications for screening for the other conditions that we are discussing this morning. And this is an area that we've had a lot of interest in and have done a fair bit of publishing in recent years. Screening without the potential of referral for appropriate intervention is clearly ineffective and probably also should be considered unethical. As we've already stated, findings must be interpreted in the context of all that is known of the family. Screening should not be an algorithm for referral. Third, there is a need for shared decision-making and respect for family autonomy. Otherwise, we undermine the provider-family relationship and confidence in that relationship. Screening must include a strength based approach. We must build on attributes and strengths of the family in order to best intervene. We should not limit screening based on families' apparent social status. This reinforces stereotypes and only enhances inequities. And also, we must not inadvertently shift limited resources from the poor who are not sick to those who seek medical care. That would be unfair and unethical. So let me leave you with the key takeaway message from the points that I've attempted to ever so briefly make this morning. Screening is an invaluable component of the early detection process, but must be employed in the appropriate context and process to be impactful and avoid harm. I hope these general comments are helpful in appreciating the specifics that my colleagues will now share. And I believe Melissa is next up. Thanks, Dr. Dorkin. Good morning, everyone. So I'm excited to be here uh, with my colleagues to talk to you a little bit more about screening for mental health concerns in children and adolescents. And we have three main objectives in our talks today. One is to review why we need mental health screenings and some considerations to expand a little bit on what Dr. Dworkin talked about, to discuss the rollout of a suicide screening initiative here at Connecticut Children's and some other processes for rolling out screenings. That's me. So let's talk a little bit and set the stage for why we need screenings. And this is information that you all have known as we've talked about mental health and the pandemic. We know that one in five kids between the ages of three to 17 have a mental, emotional, developmental, or behavioral disorder. But we also know we have some problems. Over half of kids do not receive adequate treatment, which is a problem because we have treatments that really work for kids. And the earlier that we can get them into treatment, the better. But many are not receiving care. And we know that there's some health disparities in that with our um, families from racial, ethnic minority backgrounds and socioeconomic, lower socioeconomic status not receiving the care that they need. We also know that many are undiagnosed. It would probably be a very far different statistic of one in five if we actually were getting an appropriate diagnostic um, assessment on most of our kids. Even before COVID, we had a mental health crisis. We had a sharp increase in rates across the board for different mental health concerns. But in COVID, what we saw were two particular populations where we started to see more concern. Across the country, we saw an increased risk for suicide in our Black adolescent girls as we took into account the COVID pandemic with the racism pandemic. And our transgender youth were, who are already at very high rates of suicide risk prior to the pandemic, now losing a lot of their supports in the pandemic and now having more concerns for suicide. The question in all of this has always been, can screenings be preventative? Could we stop what's occurring in our own emergency department if we rolled out screenings a little bit more effectively? 
the Surgeon General, when they when he released his youth advisory for mental health, even talked about the need for screening and that we should be routinely screening children for mental health challenges and risk factors such as adverse childhood events or experiences, otherwise known as ACEs. And he really talked about that this could be done in the primary care doctors, offices, in the emergency department, as well as in schools and offered some suggestions on where to get resources for that. And what was in perfect timing was the US Preventative Services Task Force released this week um, its recommendations for screening for depression, anxiety, and suicide risk. And this is what they're recommending now in terms of uh, assessment or recommendations for screening. For depression, they are recommending screening for major depression in adolescents starting at age 12. For anxiety, they are recommending screening for anxiety starting at the age of eight and they do not recommend screening for suicide risk in any children or adolescents, regardless of age. So how did they come up with this sort of criteria? What they did was a review of the literature and based on the risks and benefits of screening. If we screened, were we identifying kids? And if we identified those kids, were they benefiting from any kind of care because they were screened earlier? And based on that is how they made the decision that kids younger than 12 that were screened for depression really weren't benefiting from that screening. Kids under the age of eight weren't benefiting and that they didn't have enough research to say that there was any benefits for suicide risk. And I appreciate that I'm not setting up Dr. Rogers' talk well at all, so I'm so sorry for that. Um, we also know that ACEs is oftentimes talked about as something that should be screened as well. And the US Preventative Services Task Force has never made a recommendation about screening for ACEs, although talked about its impact in both depression, anxiety, and suicide risk. But the American Academy of Pediatrics recommended back in 2012 that ACEs be part of regular screening for both parental and childhood ACEs. And we know that most pediatricians don't do this. And there's a lot of factors in this, and I think a lot of it was what Dr. Dworkin talked about, but it's a very sensitive thing to be talking about. And there's still a lot of fear and stigma attached to mental health, and that really impacts the screening that we see. To add on to what Dr. Dworkin said in terms of some of the things that we also consider when we talk about screenings is a real understanding that screenings are not diagnostic. You're not diagnosing a kid from, from a screening. It is truly the start of a conversation. It is not a diagnosis. It is not an assessment. It is not a treatment plan that can be developed from that. It truly is the start. But there's still a whole much, a lot of stigma attached to mental health. Um, and we all know that even though we try not to really talk about that, think about opening up a kid's chart and seeing a whole problem was full of mental health conditions. It's gonna have a different thought pop up into your head. Um, and we know that that's still significant. And we know that there's a lot of fears from families to report mental health concerns. Am I gonna get my child taken away? Am I doing something wrong? Am I not parenting well? And those are things that we have to consider. We also have to remember that we talk about mental health in ways that we would never talk about physical health symptoms. Can you imagine if I told my, my aunt who has dementia, you know, if you just really thought about the situation a whole lot differently, I'm sure you could just snap out of what you're doing right now. And that's a reality of how we treat mental health. Is there adequate follow-up? So if you screen a child, then what do you do? Do you just leave it at that? Do you say, okay, we'll check in next time. You need to have a process that you need to follow um, for what you do after you've screened someone. And to understand that most measures that we have for screening aren't always normed for every population or for every language and that you can't translate measures and have that be culturally responsive or sensitive to the populations that you're serving. 
and to remember that it's capturing a moment in time. How I complete a measure or screener today is gonna to be very different than how I may have um, done it last week. And it's really gonna be influenced by how I feel in this moment. If I'm having a good day, I may not remember what the last two weeks have been like. If I'm having a really bad day, I may not remember the good of the last two weeks either. And so I think there's some things that we have to consider. And I think as you'll hear from, from Dr. Rogers and Dr. DeMeo's presentation, some of the things that went into their rollouts of their initiatives. And as I turn this over to Dr. Rogers, I will also um, say this, I think your screening also has the potential is actually to reduce stigma around mental health. We all have a mental health. I have a mental health, Dr. Dorgan has a mental health, Dr. Salazar has a mental health, everybody in this room has a mental health, all of you watching have a mental health, but we don't talk about it. And we only talk about it when something bad happens. There's a bad event, something happens, there's a school shooting, something happens in the community, there's a bad outcome. That's when we talk about mental health. And how different might it be if we start talking to kids early on about emotional health, about things that can be done to be helpful for families, rather than waiting for a crisis or something to happen. And maybe that's how we start to break the stigma that comes from mental health and some of the challenges with these screenings. So with that, I'll turn this over to Dr. Rogers. Good morning, everyone, and thank you, Melissa. Uh, my name is <coughs> Stephen Rogers, and I am a pediatric emergency medicine physician here at Connecticut Children's and the director of emergency mental and behavioral health services. And I'm here to describe what we consider to be a highly successful screening program that we rolled out in our emergency department. I think we're all aware that suicide is a crisis and one of our most emergent problems in the United States. Um, and I want to just present the rationale for starting this uh, screening program in our emergency department. Uh, this is a CDC chart that demonstrates the top 10 uh, leading causes of death in the United States by age group. Uh, and if you just focus right here on these green boxes, uh, you'll know back in 2014, uh, I saw this chart and I noticed that suicide had gone from the third to the second leading cause of death in the age range of 10 to 14. Uh, and that was really impactful for me. I had a 10 and a 12 year old, uh, I had 10 to 12 year old children uh, and just couldn't believe that suicide was the second leading threat to their lives uh, and was <clears throat> uh, compelled at that time to do something about it. Flat, flat, flash forward to 2020 and you'll notice the charts changed a bit. It's uh, the second leading cause of death still in the age range of 10 to 14. Uh, suicide has become the third leading cause of death in 15 to 24 year olds. And that's not because of a drop in rate. Uh, it's because unfortunately homicides have become the second leading cause of death in that age range. Uh, and finally, you'll notice this, uh, and this is what scares me now. <clears throat> suicide has become one of the top 10 causes of death in the five to nine year old range. Uh, and again, highly compelling evidence that we need to do something to start to detect suicide risk. So there's a <clears throat> youth risk behavior surveillance survey that is conducted by the CDC as well. Uh, that is an anonymous, highly reliable survey done every other year for high school students. And one of the questions on that survey is, have they seriously considered attempting suicide in the past year? And <clears throat> And unfortunately, about 20% of kids said yes. So about one in five children in our high schools have seriously considered suicide in the past year. And that number is just way too high. <clears throat> when asked, have they attempted suicide? 
About one in 10 children said, yes, I've attempted suicide in the past year. Uh, those aren't the numbers that we're seeing, unfortunately, in the emergency department, because many of these go unreported. So we started a suicide screening program in our ED. It's a universal program uh, because suicide is preventable. Prevention is premised on early identification and treatment of those at elevated risk. Uh, and you can't rely on clinical intuition. So you can't look at a child and say, oh, you look suicidal. Um, these are high-risk patients that are often unrecognized by healthcare providers. Uh, and individuals often present with somatic complaints and may not volunteer their suicidal thoughts and plans unless asked directly. And in fact, in the first month of our screening program, we had an 11-year-old child uh, who screened positive. Uh, and I think you, all of us are familiar, 11-year-old children are little small kids that play on playgrounds. Uh, and so this sweet young child screened positive uh, when her mom was notified the mom looked at the child and said i you know i can't believe this you, i i thought we were best friends and the little girl said yeah mommy we are and she said but i i thought we told each other everything and the little girl said yeah we, we do and then the mom said well why didn't you tell me about this and she said you didn't ask so we have to ask uh <clears throat> and we have to be aware that healthcare interactions are important opportunities for intervention and in fact, most individuals who die by suicide have been seen by a healthcare provider within the past 30 days. So we have a great opportunity here. Uh, and for those who are suffering with suicidal thoughts and or have uh, family or friends, uh, we have the new 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline uh, that gives us resources at our fingertips. And we have expert guidance that actually says suicide screening is best practice. So the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Association of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, the US Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Service Administration, the Maternal and Child Health Bureau, I can go on and on. Um, but even more recently, the American Academy of Pediatrics has released a blueprint for youth suicide prevention. I highly recommend that for our community providers. Uh, it's a great blueprint uh, and an easy way to get involved in suicide prevention. And in fact, our regulatory bodies have been recommending suicide screening for years. So starting all the way back in 2007, 2010, 2016, and most recently in 2019, uh, they released the, the National Patient Safety Goal 150101, uh, which actually requires us to screen for suicide risk uh, and also Around the same time, not so coincidentally, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry released this pathway. Uh, you can see the link below it if you want to go uh, and access this pathway. Uh, this one's specific for emergency departments, but they also have a community practice one as well as an inpatient pathway. So a lot of the work is already done for us. We already know, based on this expert consensus pathway, how we should be screening. Uh, and I'm not going to get into the details, but we took that pathway or that workflow and developed this pathway for us because this works best for our practice in the ED. Uh, you'll note in the pink box, uh, that's our ASQ, our primary screener uh, tool, which I, I will describe shortly, but our nursing staff uh, are the first ones to ask about suicide. Uh, and this screen is four questions with a potential fifth for those at high risk. Uh, and it takes about 40 seconds. Uh, so the answer of, hey, I don't have time, I'm too busy, uh, 40 seconds is not a lot of time. Uh, if they screen positive, we wanna be 
sure of this risk uh, and we want to make sure that we don't over screen and so we have a confirmatory screen which also gives us a risk assessment called the columbia brief safety assessment um, and we also have built much of this into our ehr to make documentation uh, and stratification risk stratification easier this is the asq screener it's available on the national institute of mental health website uh, we built that into our ehr uh, which you can see on the the right side uh, and basically will give us three outputs no evidence of risk imminent risk meaning that they answer yes to the question are you are you thinking about suicide right now or i'm sorry are you think about killing yourself right now uh, and then potential risk or non-acute positive the non-acute positives go on oh, i'm sorry actually the asq also has great reliability so you can see the sensitivity specificity and negative predictive values here um, and we do a secondary assessment uh, with the Columbia Suicide Severity Scale, uh, which is also built into our electronic health record uh, and helps us score mo low, moderate, or high risk with a focus on our high-risk patients. It also has some great reliability, as you can see here. So our rationale for the risk stratification is really important. Uh, some patients require immediate intervention and comprehensive safety precautions, so high-risk patients need to be watched. Uh, we need to make sure that they don't hurt themselves in our care. Uh, but it's not always an emergency if a patient discloses thoughts of suicide. For example, what if a child had suicidal thoughts three years ago? Uh, they're receiving care, families aware of this, they're comfortable with the, the patient's safety in the community. Those patients need to go home. They don't need to be changed and watched uh, and evaluated again. They're doing well. Um, and the risk stratific stratification, sorry, aligns resources with the need. Uh, it helps avoid harms of over-responding or stigmatizing patients. And finally, I think it's really important and one of the key factors for some of our success with our program is to monitor our, our compliance. So we have maintained uh, an approximately 90 plus percent compliance on our nursing staff. Our provider staff who does the secondary assessment has maintained a 98% compliance uh, at on average over the past two years. We've screened over 30,000 patients and we have a positive rate for that initial screener of about 17%. Um, so we are detecting a lot of suicide risk, uh, referring patients to the appropriate level of care uh, and doing our best to try to have an impact on our patient population. And next, I'd like to introduce Rochelle DeMeo, uh, our Chief Medical Information Officer and Head Pediatric Biomedical Informatics. Morning, everybody. I'm going to uh, close it out, and I think my, my part of the discussion will be pretty brief, and then we'll open it up to questions. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about how we kind of design reliable processes within our existing systems for social, mental, and behavioral health needs. And you know, the past presentation focused a lot on suicide screening. I'm just gonna try and contextualize that a little bit as one example of social determinants of health screening that, that uh, Dr. Dworkin mentioned in the beginning. And I just want to emphasize, I think, um, you know, like he did, that screening for social risks or social needs um, is not so much a, a monolithic kind of undertaking, it's really modular and it needs to be informed by the prevalence of the condition in the community, the family's desire or receptiveness to help, 
And so when we talk about the ways that we've engineered processes in our systems, um, we're doing it uh, not, I don't want to say piecemeal, but we're doing it in ways that really speaks to where we feel we have the most data and the most comfort and leaving some of the, um, some of the, the, the trickier domains for later. And I can talk about that a little bit uh, if, if people have further questions. But there are some considerations that apply to all sorts of social determinants of health screening. And, you know, in politics, and actually if anybody was watching the stock market yesterday, you know, everybody says it's the economy, but in healthcare, it's really the workflow. So we can have all sorts of hypothetical goals and aspirations, but if we don't make it, as Dr. Dworkin said, easy and convenient and readily interpretable, uh, we just don't get to where we're trying to. So when we think about social determinants of health screening, we're thinking about how we acquire the data, how we collect it and store it. And we definitely spend a lot of time considering what instruments we're selecting. Are they validated? Are they reliable? Are we capturing the information in a structured format, a discrete format? Are we using any available ontologies? Is this information limited to within our own walls or can it be shared? Is it interoperable? And then we think about beyond acquiring the data, how are we presenting the data for healthcare teams to analyze and interpret and incorporate into evidence-based medicine and uh, decision support? And then what is the actionability of this data, not only for providing care to the patient in front of them, but also advocating for resources and confirming that there are no further opportunities to improve processes. There are always opportunities to improve processes. Um, I had the pleasure in the last two years of chairing what we called our social determinants of health task force. And we really divided our efforts into three different areas, one of which was to kind of do an evidence-based and environmental screen, to take the best existing evidence from the scientific literature and from policy, and also think about what are we doing here and what are our peers doing? Can we learn from them? And then we had a, a work group that really was devoted uh, specifically to what are the domains of social determinants of health and what are the instruments that we can use to screen and assess. And then we spent a lot of time talking about the workflow and the technology and the training to use these tools. It's not just a matter of actually, you know, build it and they will come kind of thing. You really need to incorporate it into, into how people, you know, conduct their normal daily activities. So um, from my perspective, the principles for EHR integrated screening for these kinds of social issues and really all issues are to use validated tools, including pathways that are built into the electronic care workflow. And to recognize um, that what we designed here in our institution using our electronic platforms is not the same as what you guys may be experiencing in the community using a slightly different platform. We have trained staff to understand the process and the rationale for the process and to use the tools. Those are two kinds of separate trainings. Uh, we try to capture information discreetly whenever possible because that can then be used to trigger decision support and also allows us to more readily share that information with others. We shouldn't all have to you know, recreate the wheel every time we see a patient. And then we embed decision supports and access to resources, uh, educational resources and other resources within the workflow so that we don't make it difficult for people to do the right thing, we make it easy for them to do the right thing. And then, as Steve pointed out, and I'm responsible for that very colorful eye chart that he had on his, on his slide, we explicitly connect that workflow to our monitoring and management oversight. So Steve pointed out that, you know, they review that suicide data every week. And we recently made some adjustments in the ways that we uh, triggered some decision support and we weren't exactly satisfied with the impact to the workflow. So we are going back to the drawing board to see whether we need to make additional adjustments. 
Um, this is what some of the decision support looks like. So uh, when that nurse completes the ASQ, if the ASQ is positive, it prompts them to do something, to open an order set, to uh, it adds a flag to the chart. Um, you know, it, it's right there in line. They don't go searching for it. And similarly, physicians get the, uh, the alert on the bottom. And uh, I think Steve pointed out that sometimes the Columbia is completed by a physician or advanced practice provider, and sometimes it's completed by a social worker if they, if they complete the full one. So there are two different versions of that decision support. We embed tools into the EHR. Um, this is an example of what a safety planning tool looks like. And you know, Paul mentioned that, um, that the output of screening should always build on strengths. And so I think the safety plan is a really great example of that. It includes opportunities to identify coping strategies and resources within the safety plan. It's, it's uh, designed to be personalized and collaborative. It is designed to be culturally appropriate, to include specific activities and specific people or contacts. Um, but that's not the only intervention that we that suicide screening is linked to or that uh, other screenings are linked to. We also include counseling and we provide education resources. I think one of the examples he gave was, you know, if we know that there's such a uh, prevalent problem with housing, why aren't we just providing information to everybody? And so we actually do. We automate the provision of information. It appears on the after visit summary for many conditions. And I think that's it. I'm going to end there and hopefully you guys have some questions and we can take some further discussion. Thank you, uh, Paul. Steve, Melissa, and Rochelle, very informative and provocative at the same time. So um, I, I'm going to, I think we have uh, over 70 people that have logged on. And uh, the first question is uh, from Pam Nellebear. I think that's how I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, and I'll start with, uh, I think this will be for you, uh, Melissa. Can public schools and school nurses screen for mental health without parental consent? Yeah, yes. Um, should they? Probably not. I think it, I think screening is probably best done when it's done in the context of the system that the, the child is in. And so I think to roll that out in the context of letting families be aware of that, and because you're also going to have to follow up with families anyway, so I think it's better that it's done in the context of family support. Uh, Paul, do you want to follow up on that? I mean, so in the, in, you know, the Hartford has pretty robust healthcare system within the schools and they, they have often, they have many teens, adolescents that come in for other conditions, STD uh, diagnosis. Should they be able to screen for suicide in, in that setting? Well, I certainly agree with Melissa and uh, I, Ideally and optimistically, this will always be done in partnership with the family. I think the overarching concept, though, is to apply early detection, including screening, within the context of all that is known about the child or the student and the family. So in if we're ideally within a school-based clinic where the school nurse, for example, is familiar with the family circumstances of the child, it may uh, reflect the best clinical wisdom to uh, perform early detection and screening with the child and only the child, only the student, if the family 
situation is part of the risk for that child. So I think on the one hand, yes, ideally this should always be done in partnership with the family, but thinking about the early detection process in the context of all that is known about the family and the student may compel uh, the selection of a uh, process that isn't necessarily, for good reasons, engaging the family at that point in time. Okay, great, thank you. Uh, there's just a clarification. What is the Sparkler? So Sparkler is a uh, technology. It's uh, available as an app and also available online that has, uh, that includes uh, screening tools, it includes information for parents on how to best undertake developmental promotion, like encouraging parents to read to children at young ages, which we're well familiar with, and also uh, identifies particular resources, programs, services that are available uh, to families, to child health, early care and education, and family support uh, providers, um, and it is actually uh, an initiative that has been undertaken by the Office of Early Childhood in Connecticut, is available to all Connecticut families um, and re relevant professionals, and is increasingly being rolled out in a number of places across the state. It operates in conjunction with uh, Help Me Grow Connecticut and uh, United Way's 211 Child Development. So it's available. It's available now for families, and it's gaining um, a fair bit of headway in Connecticut and to a limited degree is also being applied across the country. Great. So perhaps we could make it available uh, online. We'll give that resource to all the sure. uh, everyone who's on uh, signed on. Uh, Steve, this this one's for you. Uh, you your you and your colleagues are in the midst of a of a, a, a remarkable surge of you know very busy with respiratory disease in the emergency department with many kids coming in, keeping you very busy. You're asking um, uh, your colleagues to in addition to take care of those patients that you provide or you continue to do the suicide screening uh, and the nurses. Um, what's the feasibility within a busy practice, busy ED, to be able to do this effectively and actually have uh, the ability to make the referral while you're doing everything else that you're doing? Like I said, it's, you know, it's a 40-second it's a investment that may save a child's life. So I, we, we trained our staff. We offered them support. We built the workflows into the EHR. We did everything we could to make it as easy as possible. Um, and our staff culture changed. Uh, they were motivated to do it. All it takes is one positive screen. Uh, and, and once you detect that child, like I mentioned earlier, uh, and they share those stories, uh, it's highly motivating. And our compliance rates, I think, really speak to the feasibility. You know, so when we started at 84% compliance when we first started almost three years ago, and we've had upwards of you know 90 plus percent compliance by our nursing staff and a busy ED, it shows their motivation for sure. Uh, and our provider staff is almost 100% compliant. Uh, and so I, I really think it is feasible and every ED should be doing it. 
And, and you know, we're hoping to expand that process to include inpatient perioperative services and eventually our whole network so that Connecticut Children's is truly universally screening for suicide. So, so Richelle, what are the tools that a pediatric practices can put in place to make it as easy as Steve makes it easy in the emergency department? Well, I think, you know, it ultimately comes down to the local workflow. I think, you know, I can't say workflow enough times during this presentation, but you need to find a way to embed it into what your clinical staff is already doing. And I think that's what we've done successfully in the emergency department. I think the other thing is really the universality of it. And, you know, Paul alluded to the fact you can't decide to just target a sub, you know, subset of patients because of what you perceive their risk to be. I mean, I think what makes it even easier for us to comply with it is it's done for every patient. There's not a question about should I be doing this? Um, and then, you know, we have the questions uh, embedded in our EHR, and those questions trigger automatic interpretation. So no one has to add things up or calculate. You know, they are presented with the interpretation. They combine that with their clinical judgment and with a conversation with the family. Yeah, so it's really important for our pediatricians in the community that they can integrate this into their into their electronic health record to make it easy. Steve, I think you're going to follow up on that. No. Oh, okay. I thought oh, oh, she just handed off the no, microphone. No, game of hot okay. potato with the mic. All right. So, so uh, yeah, go ahead, Paul. Just one other point that I want to make and acknowledge very clearly. We are fortunate in Connecticut to have resources available at our disposal, at least in theory. Um, we don't take full advantage of those resources. And I think that's because they haven't been made sufficiently accessible and available to very, very busy clinicians. I agree with Rochelle's points about building it into the workflow, but we need to support and surround the clinicians with easy access to adequate resources. In theory, uh, 211 child development, previously known as child development info line. In theory, help me grow Connecticut. In theory, the resources of our Center for Care Coordination should be available to all providers, certainly with respect to the latter, providers within our care network. We have a lot of work to do to make that actually the case. And the issue of how do you combine developmental promotion or behavioral health promotion and early detection with referral and linkage should be solved for the practices. We must not require the practices to solve that problem independently because it's overwhelming. And when the system works the way that it should, this should minimize and make the work of the practices easier, not harder. Again, in full acknowledgement, we have work to do with our state agencies to ensure that that's the case. But we are actively engaged in doing that work and have recently seen some progress. Great. Thank you, Paul. I'm sure our, our pediatricians greatly appreciate that comment. Well, I was just going to comment and just to reiterate what Paul's already said, you know, I, I just presented our work actually at the American Academy of Pediatrics national meeting. Um, and we are fortunate in this state. Um, and so we do have mobile crisis services um, and access mental health, both of which are available to all pediatricians, anybody taking care of children uh, in terms of working this into your practice and workflow. So yes, 
you do need to design a, your workflow, but that can include these two services uh, that can really make it easy, as Paul said, to screen kids for suicide uh, and other mental health disorders. Great, thank you. Um, Melissa, you uh, showed a slide that, uh, at least what I read, maybe I was not reading correctly, that you should not screen for suicide in the younger populations, even the teenagers. Uh, Steve obviously is going not aligned with that recommendation. So can you just clarify for us what that means? Sure. So the recommendation from the U.S. Preventative Task Force indicated that when they reviewed the research, there wasn't a whole lot of evidence to indicate that screening for suicide led to better outcomes. Now, that this doesn't occur. It just means that the research was not there to support that there was improved outcomes as a result of it. I think the other thing with screening, and, and maybe we've said it indirectly, is that there, there's recommendations and then there's the right thing to do. And I think this is where sometimes the suicide risk screening really comes in. It's the right thing to do because we know it's such a prevalent concern for our kids. But when they went back to look in the research, and I think you would agree with this, there's not a whole lot of research to indicate that kids have better outcomes because they've been screened. It doesn't mean they don't, we just don't have the research to support it. Paul? Yeah. One thing to reinforce Melissa's point, it's really important to keep in mind how these different governing or policy bodies work. And the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, no disrespect intended, has for decades adopted the approach that if the research evidence is not there, it cannot make a positive recommendation for a certain clinical action or activity. And for many years, indeed for decades, the only pediatric child health supervision activity recommended by the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force was the administration of immunizations, because that was the only activity for which research evidence unequivocally existed. That's evolved a bit, fortunately, over the years, but there is still a big discrepancy between the activities endorsed by the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force and best practices as articulated and advocated for by, for example, the World Health Organization. There's a big discrepancy and it relates to the different methodologies undertaken by the governing bodies. Great, so we, uh, so back to you, Steve. So we're, at least for <laughs> Connecticut Children's, uh, and our recommendation is that we will continue to use the tool and, and that's something that you have found useful in, in yes, your practice. Yes, absolutely. And, and we recommend it to all clinicians who are taking care of kids. Uh, in fact, we are determined to give them that evidence that they say is lacking. Uh, so we're hoping to have true universal screening uh, and prove that it creates positive outcomes. All right. So align with that, that statement, uh, Nina, Nina Livingston is asking a question for any of you. Are there, are there validated screening tools for ages five to nine? Not that I'm aware of. Okay, so Nina, the answer is no, not yet at least. So, so it's not validated, but they have used the ASQ screener for kids less than... So what should people 10. ask five to nine-year-olds? I think that should be targeted screening. Okay. Uh, if, if they're concerned about uh, the child having behavioral health issues, uh, and they probably should be seeking uh, expert advice from either you know, mobile crisis, access mental health, 
uh, if they have access themselves to a psychologist, a psychiatrist, or a social worker, um, they should be doing that. Because we have seen, clarify if not, not the case, we have seen younger kids that, that have attempted suicide and even committed suicide be, yeah, before the age of nine. It's in the top 10 causes of yeah. death in five to nine-year-olds. Melissa? I'll just add, and then you could probably add as well, there are some general screeners that you could consider to use in your uh, practice. So like the pediatric symptom checklist starts at age seven. Sometimes that's been used a little bit um, for younger ages as well. It doesn't get into specifically asking about suicide risk, but it really gets into behaviors, mood, externalizing behaviors, outbursts, some sleep problems as well, which can be signs that you need further assessment, I think, to get to Steve's point of a more targeted assessment. And I would just also add, there's a distinction between universal screening and secondary or targeted screening. And recommendations for universal screening have certain attributes or requirements, secondary screening or targeted screening can be driven by clinical judgment, clinical suspicion, or additional information that you acquire. There's a difference between the two. And we shouldn't take recommendations for or against universal screening and apply them to secondary or targeted screening. Different issue. For, for any of you, the, the question from Dr. Schwab, how do we connect patients to the resources you're talking about? What is the, what's the easiest way? Well, let me go beyond screening and say, in general, when the system works, screen, uh, referral and linkage happens. And I, I don't mean this to be a, a, a self-serving pitch for the Help Me Grow model, but we work with affiliates around the country. And we know that when the system is in place to support developmental promotion, early detection, referral, and linkage, linkage rates to programs and services are in the range of 85 to 90 percent, which is really unprecedented. And when the system works, families report 90 to 95 percent of the time that the program or services to which they are linked is helpful in addressing their underlying issues. So the answer lies in our working together to build the system to support clinicians, early care and education providers, family support providers. And we have extraordinary examples of that working, and we are committed to ensuring that Connecticut can become such an example. So sort of a follow-up to that is a comment from Julie Schiff. Thank you to all presenters for a wonderful presentation, especially Dr. Dworkin for understanding primary care limitations. We want to screen but need the resources to send families to. There's, there's a list of 211 child information, info line that we can provide to our patients. If a screen is positive, that would be great. Uh, I do agree that every doctor should not have to find their local resources and update those lists as they change on their own, there must be a better way. So we'll appreciate it. I think that's something that we can do. And, and Paul, your office is obviously at the forefront and our CIN is clearly moving in that direction. Uh, just a quick question, is there a way to get reimbursed for screening? Does anyone know the answer to that? Rochelle? Yes. Yes? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. All right, we'll have to expand on that at some point. Um, the last question is, uh, wouldn't the change in our well visit schedules be best be modified by requiring not only one well visit per per year, but six months after to requiring a mental health visit every year as well. That's an interesting question. So some states have passed that in the legislation where they now are requiring their state insurances to pay for a behavioral health wellness visit each year. Great. Um, 
so thank you to to all of you. Uh, it, it, this has been absolutely great, and I think it clarifies, uh, you know, some of the issues that were raised for, with the grand rounds. I really appreciate it and, and clarification. This is recorded for people. If you want to go back to it, and certainly you can reach uh, Paul, Melissa, Steve, and Rochelle through email. Uh, they're always happy to talk about these issues and even go to your practice and help you with it. So again, thank you, everyone. Have a good weekend. Take care. Be safe. Bye bye.